0: This evening I'd like to pick up on some of the things I mentioned last night and explore them in a little bit more depth with you. But before I do that, I want to talk a little bit about the problem of the human condition as the Buddha sees it. The main problems that we can readily identify for ourselves are the problems of what he calls greed and aversion. let bracket out delusion for a bit this is the unholy trinity so uh, we've got delusion in there as well but I really want to just look at these two aversion and greed because it's claimed in the early texts by the Buddha that the development of metta and compassion is the wonderful antidote to both of these elements which are so, so present in human life. The greed that we see around us, not just individual, but corporate. The aversion that we see around us, again, not just individualised, but often institutionalised within the structures of our societies. So these should be very familiar to us, you know, both personally and societally, that that we live in a sense in a place which is permeated often by these very, very strong emotions and the motivations that go along with those. So what does this mean in reality? It means in reality for most of us, not all of the time, but part of the time, and sometimes a dominant part of our life on this earth, that we are simply... Pull towards that which we like, seeking it out, wanting more of it. If a little is good, then even more must be better, that kind of attitude. And very, very definitely seeking to avoid so much of life. There is so much that we are running away from, so much that we are trying to avoid in just day-to-day existence. In many ways these tendencies and these very sharp tendencies of patterns and that's the way I'd like to you to hear them as patterns of greed and patterns of aversion get built into the warp and woof of our psyches so much that we think they are us. That we, th- they, we think that these are the dominant character traits that we possess because we are pushed and pulled throughout life. Just seeking to gratify ourselves, to pass the time in this world um, by acquiring, and that can be all sorts of things. Materiality is obviously one dimension, but also we seek to avoid, and avoid so much. And if there's one thing that really almost is there, right at the heart of life, is you can't avoid. You can desperately try, you can build up illusions and chimeras of a safe and stable reality, Um, but every so often something will come along and really rupture it, really break through, destroy the illusion, unsettle and unbalance us in ordinary life. Much of the acquisition is the seeking of security, through the acquiring of goods, the obvious one, but also the acquiring of status and knowledge and power and all of those things as well. Becoming roles, becoming whatever is offered out and proffered to us in life. So we are really radically, from this perspective, entrapped. Entrapped within this push-pull mechanism being pulled towards that which we want, averse to that which we don't want. Now, I don't know if it strikes you, but the most obvious thing about that is if that is the case, and really this is for you to examine it in terms of your own life, and just looking around and seeing whether it's true as a form of dominant behaviour in others. If that is true then the Buddha really is saying then human life, in its ordinariness, possesses very little freedom. Because we are, in some senses, and it's slightly a distortion of the term, but in some senses we're Pavlovian. We're like Pavlov's dogs. Give us the thing that we want and we're salivating for it. We're also trying to avoid, as I keep saying. So we're constantly pulled between these polarities, This polarity of wanting and wanting to avoid. We even build them, as I suggested, into the patterns of our psyche. So much so that I can be defined and um, create my identity out of my likes and my dislikes. Um, So much so, I think, that we are very deeply suspicious sometimes of people who don't have very strong likes and dislikes. so much that we kind of think they're sitting on the fence. They have to take a position either way in terms of the like and the dislike. And in fact, in many senses, this covers a whole range of our feeling. How The feeling tone of existence for us is one governed by like and dislike and neither. Neither liking nor disliking. A kind of state which is a numbness in a way, towards much of life. Now this is diagnostic, obviously, um, because the Buddha is not saying this is a hopeless condition. It's um, not a hopeless condition because there is volition still there and we can still do something about it. Our lives do not have to be governed by these very, very strong and very, very powerful traits They do not have to be governed by that in determining our course through life. We can develop and orient our minds in other ways. But why why do we fall into this trap of aversion and greed and craving so easily? And I think, again, from this perspective, just sharing this perspective with you, that we tend to fall into that because we have a misunderstanding a fundamental and radical misunderstanding a misidentification of where happiness lies whatever that might mean for you individually happiness perhaps lies in security and certainty in the possession of goods or status and possessions it also lies in the avoidance on this diagnosis and the avoidance of so much of the inevitabilities of life so much um, we we often are caught into caught in patterns of avoidance that are so so deeply strong i was remember i was remembering the other day an um uh, incident from my childhood where um, a friend of mine's father was so deeply averse to anything happening he totally ignored everything and I remember one time they were sitting in their back room during a gale and half a tree came through the window. And the father got up and calmly drew the curtain over it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this shows you in some senses how strong the patterns of avoidance can be of not wanting to acknowledge that if something is happening, something is destroyed i don't know the kind of the coziness of the of the sitting room or whatever it might be yeah. now it's all very well me externalizing this and pointing it out than somebody else's behavior but of course we all do this we all have these patterns of avoidance and like it or not what we seek to do often with others is avoid them you know um like it or not, we're in a world with others, so consequently there is attraction and repulsion in relation to others. And so we are you know, in this state of wanting to be with certain people and wanting to avoid others. Um, something, of course, again we can't do because we're thrown into situations. Literally, there's a thrownness about us when we're thrown into situations where we can't avoid, where we can't be with the people we want to be. Work situations is a classic one. You know, where you're spending a lot of your time with people perhaps you don't really wish to be with. Again, this is all diagnostic. So really what, we're trying, what I'm trying to say here is that what this, these, these patterns of behavior that we're engaged in are really patterns of trying to create happiness for ourselves. So in some senses, one can't just label it as bad. One can't just sort of wag a moral finger and say you're just bad people behaving wrongly. It's not like that. In many ways, what we are trying to do is simply our best. But unfortunately, misidentifying where the sources of the causes of happiness might lie. This is a much abused word, not particularly a word I like, happiness. Perhaps contentment, peace, ease are better words for it. But a state where there isn't this tension, this pulling between polarities. So we're misidentifying, we're mar- and radically misidentifying where it lies. There's a vested interest in society to keep us looking in the wrong direction, um, you know, to keep consuming goods. This is part of what it's about, and you know, the myth of happiness, which is often offered out, you know, proffered to you. Um, by the advertisements yeah. and these are, you know, these are very gross examples There are the more subtle forms of adopting certain lifestyles and ways of behaviour when you're going to become satisfied and fulfilled and this, that and the other and there's much that can be pointed at in terms of what we could really refer to as spiritual materialism as well where even the spiritual path itself becomes yet another garb or guise which we take on uh, and we can swap roles, move from one spiritual tradition to another spiritual tradition and still never find that ease or that contentment and also coupled with aversion and greed where also all of the psychology of the negative of the negative psychology that arises out of them, such as irritation and anger and resentment and jealousy. Such as, obviously, the greed and the avarice and the miserliness and the conceit that goes with what arises out of the psychology of greed. So all of our negative psychologies can be traceable actually to the three major roots, greed, aversion and delusion, but just for this evening I only want to concentrate on these two. And we pass. I'm sorry if I'm making you miserable this evening, it's not intentional. <laughs> we, can pass, we can pass through life, and it seems so sad. It is, there's a, a very much a pathos, I think, associated with the human condition, which is we pass through life, this, this transitory, extremely quick blip of our lives. We pass through. This world immured often in these negative states. Immured in them so that a lot of our time, our energy, our day-to-day existence is consumed, and dare I put this word on it, by pettiness. By petty forms of behavior, petty forms of resentment, petty forms of jealousy, avarice, conceit. We spend a lot of our time really inhabiting these ways of being in the world. And again, this is not, as I say, simply to make you miserable, unhappy or anything. It's to point out that it doesn't have to be that way. That life does not have to be this travail of these pettinesses writ large across our our day-to-day existence. It doesn't have to be that. What the Buddha offered us, with effort, and he didn't ever say that it was easy to get, with effort, he offered us a way of being and a way of living in this world where we reached our potential. Our potential. Not our potential to be greedy and jealous and resentful and conceitful and all that, but our potential to be friendly and kindly and compassionate, and ultimately to have understanding, profound, deep insight and understanding into the way things actually are in this world. To rise above, to overcome the pettiness within ourselves. To overcome that push-pull mechanism of being forced from one polarity to another, from the seeking, the endless, endless seeking after fulfilment and satisfaction in things which ultimately never can give it to you. There's a word in Pali, slightly different in Sanskrit, which really defines this and which the Buddha identifies as the immediate cause of our problems. In Pali it's tanha, in, in, in Sanskrit it's trishna. This word trishna or tanha really indicates... And this is a literal translation an unquenchable thirst. By its very, very nature, this search, this thirst that we have, which is its normal translation is craving, desire, by its very nature, it cannot be satisfied. It's endless. The search for fulfilment in these ways, through the things I've briefly mentioned, such as the search for fulfilment through materiality, the search for fulfilment through roles, through even simply the acquisition of knowledge and status and power, All of these things were never really at an end. They can never come to an end. It can never be quenched. It can never be cooled. As long as we're caught on that treadmill. I'm mixing metaphors desperately here, but never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Once we're caught on that treadmill, looking and looking and looking and looking and looking, and I'm sure we've all had this experience at some point as the desired object, whatever it might be, the desired object, which the mythology tells you is going to make me happy, when you actually get it, what happens? Does happiness suddenly arise, that it suffuse and pulse through your system? No, often it doesn't. What you get is pleasure. And there's nothing wrong with that. Let's point this out. There is nothing wrong with pleasure. There's nothing wrong in taking pleasure as long as it doesn't harm others in the doing of it. But what is pleasure? It's transitory. It arises and it passes away. However, if we mistake it for happiness, of course we've got to try and keep repeating it like an addict. Like somebody who's caught up in a profound addiction we've got to have higher and higher doses of pleasure in order to maintain the myth of happiness. So the Buddha is offering us another way, another way, a way of beginning to drop this endless search for something which will never provide any stability, any contentment, but will only continue to produce restlessness. And if we look around Western society, much of it is extremely restless. I mentioned this last night. I'm picking up on something I spoke about last night. This search for, for newness, for innovation, for you know, the kind of curiosity in its worst sense of trying just simply to look for the new without feeling grounded or dwelling, really, where we are. Now, the Buddha offers this alternative because the one that we live, the paradigm that we live in, certainly, and I think most of us probably can say this, certainly does not make us happy. It does provide us with something and, of course, In the original languages, there's a nice word for this. It's called dukkha. This word dukkha is usually translated as suffering, which is kind of over-egging the cake a lot of the time, because much of it is, in a sense, simply down to this agitation, this lack of satisfaction, this feeling that life isn't providing me with what I want it to provide. Now again, all of this you have to check out in terms of your own experience and look at it. From the smallest to the largest aspects of your lives. From the big things, as I say, to the little things. To see whether this holds true. To see whether this querulousness, this agitation runs through your life. Making it feel, even when you've got the situation that you really wanted, and most of us don't even get to that, but even if you have, somehow there's still dissatisfaction written into it somehow there is that lack of fulfilment written into that situation so you you get to be with the person you want to be with and it's still not quite right you get the newest material object that you want and it's not quite the right (laughs) colour you get the new house and you get the role and it's not quite how you want it to be. So there's always an element within it which is unsatisfying. Yeah. So what are we doing here? And I suggested earlier on that what we're doing is we're looking in the wrong place. Mostly we're turning outwards. We're looking outwards for fulfilment and contentment and satisfaction. And this is, again is picking up something on something I said last night. We're almost demanding That these constructed edifices, such as roles, provide us with happiness. That others make me happy. That the objects that I acquire, be they small or be they large, should make me happy, should make me content, should make me fulfilled. So we're placing an impossible demand on others. And this is very serious in the realm of human relationships. Often we mistake this demand for love. And this will lead me of course back into into Metta. Because this demand that we often make on the others and mistake for love isn't really that at all. It's the demand for something which actually again can never be fulfilled. The other can never fulfil it. Another can never make you happy. You can work at it together, but another can never make you happy. This is the reason why all too often, of course, relationships turn sour, they become bitter, they end up not providing one or the other of the partners with what they're looking for. And, of course, then it all turns rather nasty, rather sour. Not always, but often so love so called so called turns to hate very quickly because it was never really love in the first place it was something else our demand on the world to make us happy well that won't do it either and i won't go into the details but you know capitalist materialist societies are societies with escalating incidences of depression the greater the affluence the more depression goes up because at the heart of it in a sense is the feeling of course that it's not going to give me what I want there is a recognition albeit not necessarily a cognitive recognition that this way of life, this way of being this craziness which so many of us engage in is not going to make me happy now, all of this was going on in different ways. You, know, you have to make the relevant changes for societies 2,500 years apart, but none of it's new. It's all part of the human condition. You know? If they were screwing up 2,500 years ago, we're doing it just effectively now, probably more effectively in some ways. Because we, in a sense, look for this happiness, this contentment, this fulfilment, whatever it is, whatever word works for you here, we look for it in areas, of course, which will never, ever provide it for us. Why do we do that? We do it because it's so obvious. There's the things around us, there are others around us. And what we never really, really do is look for the origins, the sources, and the genuine wellspring. Of becoming happy in this world becoming content in this world in the world of interpersonal relationships of course then it has to be looked at in that which brings about genuine relationship in fact in much of the others I would talk about also and use the expression genuine relationship and how do we establish that genuine relationship how do we become into an interconnectivity with others a genuine based interconnectivity with others well as you know the obvious answer is meta friendliness it's being a movement. This is why the Buddha, again referring to something last night, this is why the Buddha speaks about metta as being the foundation of the world. Now the world isn't simply out there. You know, There's stuff out there. You are out there. I'm out there. You know, it's all the furniture of the world in terms of the trees and the houses and everything else. But the world in many senses, the foundation of this world is in our minds. It's nowhere else. So the origins and the sources of our distress, our discomfort, our suffering, our pains, our anxieties. And also, and I've spoken obviously very negatively about the, the, the pathos of the human condition. But also the wellsprings for the joy the peace, the love, the contentment, the compassion, the insight, the equanimity, these all lie within the mind as well. So what we seem to have done, for various reasons, some of which I might touch on, is basically elevated one set of characteristics, one world over another world. We've identified with a certain world that's produced that has a feeling tone. That feeling tone for most of us is what I mentioned using that Pali Sanskrit term dukkha. Unsatisfactoriness, dissatisfaction, distress, and all the rest of it. I could give you a whole litany of words, but I'm not going to. There's lots and lots that are covered under it. Anything, anything that you find not quite right in this world. Anything you don't want to happen. All of this becomes dukkha for you. All of it becomes unpleasant and painful at some point in time. I'm very fond, I quoted it many times. I quoted it earlier on in the summer. One of my teachers was, um, at one point, was the Dalai Lama's senior tutor when I was in one of the Tibetan monasteries. And he said that this process of dukkha, he said, was not like something sharp and painful. He said, it wasn't like being stabbed. He said, imagine this. It's like slowly rubbing your arm against a brick wall. It doesn't start off very painful. With repetition, it becomes more and more and more painful. And unfortunately, a lot of life is spent doing that, repeating. The compulsion to repeat. From the Buddha's perspective, we all have OCD, Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. (laughs) We keep doing the things again and again and again, which we know are not going to make us happy. But do we give them up? No. We keep on doing them. There is a profound sense, and I don't know if you've ever felt this, there's a profound sense of déjà vu in all this, You know, actually, not exactly being in the same place, of course, but in many instances, what you're experiencing in any given situation is very similar to what you've experienced in the past because you've brought to bear on exactly the same searches and longings and cravings and desires that you had in the previous situation. So you're just repeating. We have this compulsion to keep on repeating. This compulsion to keep on repeating has a nice Buddhist name. It's called Sangsara, which literally means to go round in circles. Um, Within the traditions, that's meant the circle or the wheel of birth, death and rebirth, which can all be seen. Every moment of birth, death and rebirth can be seen present in this life without ever positing other lives or future lives. It all can be seen here, because we just keep going on round and round and round in a circle. It's the ultimate vicious circle. And it has one feeling tone, Dukkha, dissatisfaction. And it keeps on coming back, as long as we keep on repeating. What is driving that? Well, our good old friends, aversion and greed with a hefty dose of delusion as well, to keep it going. So that's the kind of situation we find ourselves in. So it's going to take a radical, isn't it, as you can imagine, given I've set it up seemingly so pessimistically, it's going to take a radical reorientation to break that, because that is the world we know. That's the word. Like it or dislike it. And most of the time, we spend a lot of time disliking it. However, it's what we know. That is where we are. You know? To greater or lesser extents. So I don't want to be entirely monolithic in this. You know, to greater or lesser extents, this is what we know. This is where we are. We're caught in these compulsions to repeat. So, what is required? It's what is required is a radical reorientation of the mind towards, in a sense, not an other world, but another world of the mind. Yeah. In other words, to develop and let's use the proper word that's usually used for meditation, bhavana, cultivate factors which are already there which bring us into what I referred to earlier on as a genuine relationship with the world. Genuine relationship with others. You know, instead of others being threatening, um, to, from, you know, to which we have to protect ourselves, to defend ourselves, others are out there struggling and suffering just as much as you are. Everybody is in some senses in the same boat at this stage. So, the first movement is to see that, to begin to see the struggle that we obviously have ourselves to maintain any stability in this world, the desperation often with which there is, the ways that we form our identity through our pains and our identities through our identified pleasures often our lack or ability, seeming inability much of the time to relinquish that which is painful and causes us pain almost in a desperate attempt to say at least I know who I am because I'm in pain <laughs> and I think much of it again is this attachment, this compulsive attachment to things which are painful because of that it almost substantiates our being because of the pain and the distress to not be in pain might be to be nobody and i mean that from the the littlest irritations to the profoundest things that can happen to one and so we can form our whole identities on that process, on that process of identifying with our misery rather than letting it go. Hence the reason why in meditative practice not to ignore anything. In this practice of cultivation, be it the metta practice which we're doing over this weekend or be it vipassana, not to let anything pass you by without coming into the range of attention or coming into the range of awareness actually a complex it's called satisampajanya in the original language in Pali satisampajanya is actually awareness or mindfulness and understanding so the two come together you're aware and you also understand what is going on you see clearly what is happening without that repression that I spoke about and has really informed a lot of what I said in relation to the meditations but also not grasping after it because you can see just those simple things that are going on in our cultivation practice in our meditation practice even if you're doing something as simple as samatha simple concentration meditation is it highlights the tendency of the mind to want to gravitate towards that which it likes and get carried off on it in a stream of fantasy, in a stream of myths. Or the basic tendency to want to repress those dimensions of ourselves, our personalities, which we don't like. So again, it's the the mechanism that I spoke about in terms of our search through life just going on in that moment-to-moment aspect of the mind. Wanting to run away from... wanting to gravitate towards so greed and aversion is there present in just those simple situations so in this radical reorientation of the mind what are we replacing these facets with what are we replacing the greed and the aversion with what are we developing? What are we cultivating? Well, obviously, one answer is again meta, Forming, as it does, this foundation for developing our interrelationship with the world. As the German language poet Rilke says, it's not enough, and I mentioned this last night without acknowledging where the quote comes from, it's not enough simply to see. We have to learn to love what we see otherwise the seeing itself is cold it has no feeling there towards it now this is not a love which is a wanting to grasp after the mistaken, the distorted form of love of which I spoke earlier on the so-called love that often turns to hate this is a profound friendliness towards all things it becomes that out of which, as I said last night, it becomes the soil out of which the wonderful flower of compassion and then joyfulness and equanimity come. That soil we have to till, we have to cultivate, we have to let, you know, we have to plant our seeds and nurture them and let them grow out of this soil. So this profound friendliness, this movement through the world with a mind that isn't fixed on simple avoidance and simple grasping or craving. So it's a mind wholly different in some ways to the minds that we normally have in ordinary everyday existence. Now, that's not to say it's non existence that that aspect of friendliness isn't there, because it is for all of us. It is there sometimes in our ordinary life. You know, the compassion is there in our ordinary life. When we you know, are profoundly moved by something, you know, and the compassion genuinely wells up, might be in relationship to somebody who has had a tragedy, feeling of compassion naturally arises and the wish to help, to comfort, to be with, just to be with, sometimes is there. The friendliness and almost the joy that goes with that friendliness is also there in a lot of ordinary life. But it's often limited to a narrow circle. A narrow circle of friends and family. Often it never breaks out into anything larger so it always remains a seed which is only half germinated a seed which never has come fully to flower because we've never in a sense cultivated it properly we've never held it as being precious, this seed it arises seemingly just like all of the other aspects of mind in terms of the greed, well we're getting the opposite arising of the greed. And so one is generous, and to be generous in some senses you have to be friendly as well. So that comes out of the metta practice. The word metta has many links in Pali with other words. For example, some of you might know there's something called kalyana mitta. Kalyana mitta is a spiritual friend. Mitta is related to metta. It's the same root, which is deriving means in, mean to be friendly, you know, to be loving towards. It has all of this connotation. So this is the movement that we make, and this is the small movement that you're starting to make in this weekend. Now, I never promised you last night, and I said I wasn't holding out any promissory notes, that you're not going to get this wonderful suffusing feeling of metta pulsing through your veins by the end of the weekend but what you are starting to do you know is orient the mind actually turn the mind into more wholesome ways even if even if it's not actually happening at this moment in time so these are just small beginnings just a reorientation the moment you reorient your mind towards say the difficult person somebody you have antipathy normally towards the person you would seek to avoid you've in a sense started to create another world you started to create a world in which real relationship can start to happen where I'm not automatically propelled or reacting in this simple and it is a very simple process in this very simple process of beginning to reorient the mind I begin to use something which in Pali is called Chetana Chetana is volition so I start to act now this might be an as if and it is at the moment, this moment in time as if I really wished this person, who I don't really particularly like, all of these things. Yeah. But it's just starting to make that movement. Turning as away from patterns of reactivity into possible patterns of activity. Or actually, let's drop the word pattern, just simply into activity. Learning to, to befriend what is there rather than running away from it. Now generosity comes along with that as well, because I'm not just simply talking about material generosity. That's an important part, but it's not the story. The story is one of generosity of spirit. A spirit that can be with others, both in their pains and their sufferings, and their pleasures and their joys and can do it equally. So again, it becomes a foundational dimension. It becomes the foundation for equanimity, for example, in this world. Now when one wholly lives in this way, there's a word which has become very familiarized, it's become naturalized into English, so much so you work through an English dictionary these days, you can find it, and it's called Nibbana. Living in this way is not popping off to another place. You know, it's not actually a place at all. Nibbana is a way of being in this world. A way of being that the Buddha actually said, look, if you put enough effort into it to turn away from the sorts of things that I've spoken about earlier on, having identified, and in some senses really begun to identify for yourself, not because he says it, this is what he personally says, not because I say it, but because you've identified for yourself that there is no ultimate satisfaction or fulfilment to be found in those forms of life, in those ways of living. And if you start then to orient the mind, to turn it around and to live in this other way, everybody has a chance. There is nobody who cannot, cannot live in a better way in this world. And the metta practice is the beginning of living in this better way. So much so that actually it could be the goal itself. What better way to live, says the Buddha, than living in this friendliness, in this world, with no enemies. There's plenty of people doing bad things, but they don't have to be your enemies. One can still disapprove of what people do without hatred. And notice the way that so easily arises. You, know, you see another's action and you dislike it and then you hate the person or have a very strong emotional reaction to that person who's engaging in that action. Yet if we really began to understand the wellsprings of our own bad actions, our unwholesome actions in this world, wouldn't we begin in that spirit of generosity to see that others are doing something similar? They are thinking, they are protecting themselves, defending themselves, making themselves happy, whatever, in performing these actions. So in fact, just like ourselves the origins and the wellsprings of others' actions arise out of their woundedness just as it does often for ourselves out of their pain out of their distress and so what should be what activity should really be involved or be the response to that well not hatred (laughs) Really, the response to that, if we think about it and we understand it in relation to ourself and to the other, then our relationship or response to that should be one of deep compassion. A compassion founded on the friendliness and the generosity that starts to overcome the natural tendencies. I say natural simply because we're lazy, we go back into the known, we go back into the familiar. We move into our patterns of greed and our patterns of aversion simply because they're so familiar to us. In using Christian terminology we keep on falling into those same patterns. Often because we can't see a way out, but often simply because that is the known. So let's put this basically, to finish off this little talk, into Buddhist terminology. We keep falling into the patterns of sangsara, this endlessness of going round and round in circles. You know, in fact, as I so often say to people in this room, that the word in its original language is not a noun, it's a verb. So samsara should be sangsara you know, That's what we're doing in ordinary life, we're sangsara with all of that pattern of distress called dukkha, but we can, and this is what the Buddha really emphasized by developing this metta as the foundation of the world, this other world, which in some sense is not another place, but is another way of being, is nibbana. So that is the goal to nibbana in life. Yeah. To live life to its ultimate fulfillment. All of the potentiality which is there within us. Some traditions, in later traditions, I'm speaking primarily from the early tradition, some later traditions then start to talk about that as being every individual's Buddha nature. Everything that they can actually access within themselves that can turn them into this optimum being in the world. And that is open to every one of us. Doesn't matter what background anybody comes from, what the traumas of their life have been. This is accessible, says the Buddha, to everyone. But it doesn't come easy. And he doesn't say it's going to come easy. It's going to take effort. And it's going to take commitment. And it's a project for life. In both that sense, it's a project throughout life and to fulfilling what is there as our potential within life. That potential can simply be expressed as the potential to be friendly, compassionate, and have understanding about the way things are. And in doing that, we live this world in a wholly, wholly different way and can live it in a wholly different way. And if you engage in it, even at this faltering kind of beginning of beginning to do something like metta practice or vipassana or whatever the bhavana, the cultivation is, you can see that world slowly, slowly just start to change. Not dramatically. It's not the Big Bang Theory. It starts to change very subtly. Elements and patterns that you used to feel so much part of you can start to drop away and be replaced, not by the claustrophobia of the familiar, and by here the familiar often mean those patterns of behavior which causes pain, but the spaciousness of something which is completely different. And that is what this goal is about, and this is what the practice of metta is aimed at the practice of spaciousness, the practice of connectivity, of learning to be with others in a wholly, wholly different way. Okay, I'll finish there. That was a long talk. (laughs) I'll leave it open for some questions. If there are some questions, please, please do ask. Um, It's only been a brief talk. I mean, despite the fact I said it's been long, it's only been—it's really only touched on very, very few issues. There's a lot unexplained within what I've said. So, please, if there is something, do ask. Yes. Well, the point is, is that even, even if you're doing that, it's not always going to work. Even, you know, if you're confronted by somebody who's deeply, deeply violent or aggressive, then it's not guaranteed that because I'm feeling compassionate towards this person, feeling kind, that they're suddenly going to alter their behavior. And in fact, you can't influence another's behavior anyway. The only person's behaviour you can influence is your own. Now, in some of those situations, if they are aggressive and violent, you might just have to remove yourself from them. Sometimes, though, and I really do think this is the case, sometimes when you bring that attitude, if it's not this ultra-violent, aggressive scene, then it can touch somebody. Just sometimes. But in a way, really, any change that takes place in that person is only being stimulated by what you bring. The change has to come from within themselves. They have to, in some senses, see the futility of the aggression, the futility of the anger, or whatever it is. So, you know, don't expect... The world suddenly to change, and I mean this in the hard-headed sense of the world, not the world I've been speaking about, simply because you bring that. What it will change is your attitude towards the world. Your attitude towards others in it, who might be aggressive, and they might be violent, but that still not, might not preclude you having to remove yourself out of a situation, and that's called wisdom. So it's a good response. It's in a way, there's no absolute answer to a question like that. I can only respond to it. Could you um, say something about, because um, sort of, I was thinking about the two things, and one is like the quality of love that we want to give to ourselves, mm-hmm. and the other thing being, when we start to look at things like greed and aversion, how we might then start to be a bit like, angry with ourselves when we do notice it. So how do those two things, like, you know, how can you manage... You don't slip into something that's, like, a bit harsh on yourself and you look mm. not those qualities. That's why, why, hopefully, we learn in the practice, why I've kept emphasising to you, that when you note something that's coming up, you're simply seeing it. You're not judging it. It's, it's in a sense, coming into a friendly, non-judgmental space albeit it might be your natural greed for something, your natural aversion to something that's coming up. But it's entering into, and this is why it's so important, that in some senses there's that acknowledgement, that friendliness towards whatever is arising. A phrase I've used a number of times, which is thoughts are not your enemy. Those thoughts, those greedy thoughts, those aversive thoughts... Whatever they might be, they're not your enemies. So you can come into a relationship of acknowledgement with them, and that has to take place in a friendly space. So it's not simply about highlighting your faults and then criticising yourself for your faults. It's actually acknowledging where you are in order to move on. In other words, there's a ground of realism to this, that you can only move on from who and what you are at this moment in time, not with anything denied, not with anything kind of as a remainder left over that's going to sneak up on you at some point. You know, so it's about full and radical acceptance of, of what is there. And that's why we're trying to create this friendly environment, both internally and externally, for that to take place. So the two shouldn't really be at odds. Yeah. Thank you for listening.